0: Welcome to Quantum Magazine's podcast. Each episode, we bring you stories about developments in science and mathematics. I'm Susan Vallett. The history of chaos theory isn't how it's always played out in textbooks. It turns out women were a driving force behind it. A little over half a century ago, chaos started spilling out of a famous experiment. It came from the vacuum tubes and diodes of a Royal McBee LGP-30. This desk computer was literally the size of a desk. It weighed some 800 pounds and sounded like a propeller plane. It was so loud that it even got its own office on the fifth floor in Building 24, a drab structure near the center of MIT. Instructions for the computer came from down the hall, from the office of a meteorologist named Edward Norton Lorenz. The story of chaos is usually told like this. Using the LGP30, Lorenz made paradigm-wrecking discoveries, In 1961, he programmed a set of equations into the computer that would simulate future weather. But he found that tiny differences in starting values could lead to drastically different outcomes. This sensitivity to initial conditions was later popularized as the butterfly effect. It made predicting the far future a fool's errand. But Lorenz also found that these unpredictable outcomes weren't quite random either. When visualized in a certain way, they seemed to prowl around a shape called a strange attractor. About a decade later, chaos theory started to catch on in scientific circles. Scientists soon encountered other unpredictable natural systems that looked random, even though they weren't. The rings of Saturn, blooms of marine algae, Earth's magnetic field, even the number of salmon in a fishery. Then chaos went mainstream with the publication of James Glick's Chaos, Making a New Science, in 1987. Before long, actor Jeff Goldblum brought chaos to the big screen in the form of mathematician Ian Malcolm in Jurassic Park. John, the kind of control you're attempting is... uh... It's not possible. Listen, if there's one thing the history of evolution has taught us, it's that life will not be contained. Life breaks free, it expands to new territories, and it crashes through barriers painfully, maybe even dangerously, but, uh, well, there it is. All told, it's a neat narrative. Lorenz, the father of chaos, started a scientific revolution on the LGP30. It's a textbook case for how the numerical experiments that modern science has come to rely on can uncover hidden truths about nature. But it turns out, Lorenz wasn't the one running the machine. There's another story, one that's gone untold for a half-century. About three years ago, an MIT scientist happened across a name he'd never heard before and started to investigate— The trail ended up taking him into the MIT archives, through the stacks of the Library of Congress, and across three states and five decades to find information about the women who today would have been listed as co-authors on that seminal paper. The material shared with Quanta provides a fuller, fairer account of the birth of chaos. Let's hop in our time machine. It's fall of 2017. Geophysicist Daniel Rothman, co-director of MIT's Lorenz Center, is preparing for an upcoming symposium. The meeting would honor Lorenz, who died in 2008. So Rothman wanted to take another look at Lorenz's key paper on chaos. It's been cited by thousands since it was published in 1963. Rothman had spent years teaching it. He knew it like an old friend. But this time, he saw something he hadn't noticed before. In the paper's acknowledgments, Lorenz had written, Special thanks are due to Miss Ellen Fetter for handling the many numerical computations. Who's Ellen Fetter, Rothman thought. Here you have one of the most important papers in computational physics, and he couldn't find anything about her. Eventually, Rothman found a wedding announcement online from 1963. Ellen Feder had married John Gilley, a physicist, and changed her name. A colleague of Rothman's then remembered that a graduate student named Sarah Gilley had studied at MIT in the 1990s in the same department as Lorenz and Rothman. So Rothman reached out to her. It turned out that Sarah Gilley, now a physical oceanographer at the University of California, San Diego, was Ellen and John's daughter. Sarah was able to connect Rothman to her mom, Ellen Gilley, the mystery woman, Neat Fetter, on the phone. Ellen remembers how loud that LGP-30 computer was. Nobody wanted to in the room for long periods of time. Nobody had a desk in there. And Ellen Gilly told Rothman about the woman who had preceded her in the job of programming Lorenz's first meetings with chaos. Margaret Hamilton. Margaret Hamilton arrived at MIT in the summer of 1959 with a freshly minted math degree from Earlham College. Lorenz had only recently bought and taught himself to use the LGP 30. Like pretty much everyone else at the time, Hamilton didn't have any prior training in programming. Hamilton says Lorenz loved that computer and made her love it too. For Hamilton, these were formative years. She recalls being at a party at 3 or 4 in the morning. She realized that the LGP30 wasn't set up to produce results by the next morning, so she rushed over with a few friends to start it up. Another time, Hamilton was frustrated by all of the things that had to be done to make another run after fixing an error, so she devised a way to bypass the computer's clunky debugging process using a sharp pencil and some scotch tape. There were desks in the computer room, but because of the noise, Lorenz, his secretary, his programmer, and his graduate students all shared the other office. The plan was to use the desk computer to test competing strategies of weather prediction in a way they couldn't do with pencil and paper. First, Lorenz's team had to do the equivalent of catching the Earth's atmosphere in a jar— Lorenz idealized the atmosphere in 12 equations that described the motion of gas in a rotating stratified fluid, then the team coded them in. Sometimes the weather inside this simulation would simply repeat like clockwork, but Lorenz found a more interesting and more realistic set of solutions that generated weather that wasn't periodic. The team set up the computer to slowly print out a graph of how one or two variables changed over time. For instance, they might focus on the latitude of the strongest westerly winds. They would gather around to watch this imaginary weather. They even placed little bets on what the program would do next. Then one day, it did something strange. This time, they'd set up the printer to print out timestamps and values of a few variables at each time. Lorenz later said they'd rerun a previous weather simulation with what they thought were the same starting values. They read off the earlier numbers from the previous printout, but those weren't actually the same numbers. The computer was keeping track of numbers to six decimal places but the printer, to save space on the page, had rounded them to only the first three decimal places. After the second run started, Lorenz went to get coffee, because when you take a break, that's when the good stuff always happens, right? The new numbers that emerged from the LGP30 while he was gone looked at first like the ones from the previous run. This new run had started in a very similar place, so it made sense, but the errors grew exponentially, After about two months of imaginary weather, the two runs looked nothing alike. The system was still deterministic, with no random chance intruding between one moment and the next. Even so, its hair-trigger sensitivity to initial conditions made it unpredictable. This meant that in chaotic systems, the smallest fluctuations get amplified weather predictions fail once they reach some point in the future because we can never measure the initial state of the atmosphere precisely enough or as Lorenz would later present the idea even a seagull flapping its wings might eventually make a big difference to the weather that later became known as the butterfly effect that Jeff Goldblum's character talked about in Jurassic Park yeah, see the tyrannosaurus uh, uh, doesn't have any set patterns or or, or park schedules it's the essence uh, of chaos. I'm, I'm still not clear on chaos. Oh, oh, it, it, it uh, simply uh, deals with uh, predictability in complex systems. The shorthand is the, the butterfly effect. A butterfly can flap its wings in Peking, and in Central Park, you get rain instead of sunshine. Many accounts date the discovery of this butterfly effect to 1961, with the paper following in 1963. But in November of 1960, Lorenz described it during a Q&A after a talk he gave at a conference in Tokyo, a numerical weather prediction. Rothman says at that point, Lorenz gave it all away, but no one at the time registered it enough to scoop him. In the summer of 1961, Margaret Hamilton moved on to another project, but not before training her replacement, Ellen Fetter, who'd shown up at MIT in much the same fashion, a recent graduate of Mount Holyoke with a math degree seeking any sort of math-related job in the Boston area, eager and able to learn. Once Fetter arrived in Building 24, Lorenz gave her a manual and a set of programming problems to practice. And before long, she was up to speed. She remembers that Lorenz carried a lot in his head, sometimes pulling out a yellow sheet of legal paper to write down an idea to try. In the meantime, the project had progressed. The 12 equations produced fickle weather, but even so, that weather seemed to prefer a narrow set of possibilities among all possible states. They formed a mysterious cluster that Lorenz wanted to visualize— But that was a hard thing to do, so he narrowed his focus even further. He borrowed three equations from a colleague named Barry Saltzman. They would describe an even simpler non-periodic system, a beaker of water heated from below and cooled from above. Here, again, the LGP30 chugged its way into chaos— Lorenz identified three properties of the system corresponding roughly to how fast convection was happening in the idealized beaker, how the temperature varied from side to side, and how the temperature varied from top to bottom. The computer tracked the properties moment by moment. The properties could also be represented as a point in space. Lorenz and Fetter plotted the motion of this point. They found that over time, the point would trace out a butterfly-shaped fractal structure now called the Lorenz attractor. The trajectory of the point, of the system, would never retrace its own path. And as before, two systems setting out from two minutely different starting points would soon be on totally different tracks, but just as profoundly, wherever you started the system, it would still head over to the attractor and start doing chaotic laps around it. The attractor in the system's sensitivity to initial conditions would eventually be recognized as foundations of chaos theory. Both were published in the landmark 1963 paper. But for a while, only meteorologists noticed the result. Meanwhile, Fetter married John Gilley and moved away. They stayed in touch with Lorenz and saw him at social events, but she didn't realize how famous he had become. Still, the notion of small differences leading to drastically different outcomes stayed in the back of her mind. She says she always had this image that stepping off the curb one way or the other could change the course of any field. After leaving Lorenz's group, Margaret Hamilton embarked on a different path— At MIT's Instrumentation Laboratory, she headed the onboard flight software team for the Apollo project, starting in 1965. Her code helped guide Apollo 11's mission to the moon. This is Apollo Control, Apollo 11's velocity now 21,096 feet per second, distance from Earth 6,649 nautical miles. Hamilton also popularized the term software engineering. She later led the team that wrote the software for Skylab, the first US space station. She won NASA's Exceptional Space Act Award in 2003 and received the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2016. In 2017, she garnered arguably the greatest honor of all, a Margaret Hamilton Lego minifigure. She made a speech at the launch party. I am often asked what can be done to ensure that women have the same rights and opportunities as men. My response is always the same. We need to change the culture. So how do we do it, especially when things seem to be heading in the wrong direction? Like anything, whether it be a space mission, system, or the brain as a system, Our culture is a system as well. Within any system, one seemingly small event can change everything for better or worse because everything is somehow related and impacts everything else. Hamilton pointed out that it's been an amazing adventure. Ellen Fetter continued to program at Florida State after leaving Lorenz's group at MIT. She eventually left her job to raise her children and then became a tax preparer. Chaos only reentered Fetter's life through her daughter, Sarah Gilly. When Sarah was an undergrad at Yale in the 1980s, she sat in on a class about scientific programming. They studied Lorenz's discoveries on the LGP30. Later, Sarah studied physical oceanography as a graduate student at MIT, joining the same overarching department as both Lorenz and Rothman, who had arrived a few years earlier. Today, chaos theory is part of the scientific repertoire. In a study published last year, researchers concluded something that Lorenz had suggested in the mid-1960s that no amount of improvement in data gathering or in the science of weather forecasting will allow meteorologists to produce useful forecasts that stretch more than 15 days out. But the many retellings of chaos's birth say little to nothing about how Hamilton and Ellen Gilley wrote the specific programs that revealed the signatures of chaos— Jennifer Light of MIT's Science, Technology, and Society program says this is an all-too-common story in the histories of science and technology. Sure, storytellers tend to focus on one great character like Lorenz, but the omission also stems from tensions that remain unresolved today. First, coders in general have seen their contributions to science minimized from the beginning. Over a reporter's typing, Illinois Institute of Technology computing historian Mar Hicks, author of Programmed Inequality, says coding was seen as rote. The fact that it was associated with machines actually gave it less status rather than more. But beyond that and contributing to it, many programmers in this era were women. Again, excuse the typing. During this period... Computing work was very feminized, and it was seen completely differently than we see it today. You know, it wasn't high-status work. It wasn't necessarily highly paid either. An analysis of official U.S. labor statistics shows that in 1960, women held 27 percent of computing and math-related jobs. The percentage has been stuck there for a half-century— In the mid-1980s, the fraction of women pursuing bachelor's degrees in programming started to decline. Experts have argued over why. One idea suggests that early personal computers were marketed preferentially to boys and men. Then when kids went to college, introductory classes assumed a detailed knowledge of computers going in, which alienated young women who didn't grow up with a machine at home. Today, women programmers describe a self-perpetuating cycle where white and Asian male managers hire people who look like all the other programmers they know. Women in the field also say they face harassment. Hamilton and Gilly, however, still speak of Lorenz's humility and mentorship in glowing terms. Before later chroniclers left them out, Lorenz thanked them in the literature in the same way he thanked Saltzman, who provided the equations Lorenz used to find his attractor. Computation in science has become even more indispensable. For recent breakthroughs, like the first image of a black hole, the hard part was not figuring out which equations described the system, but how to leverage computers to understand the data just like Margaret Hamilton and Ellen Fetter helped do decades ago. Michelle Yoon helped with this episode. I'm Susan Vallett. For more on this story, read Joshua Sokol's full article, The Hidden Heroines of Chaos, on our website, quantamagazine.org. String theory, the debate over the physics of time, even how life and death spring from disorder. That's what you'll find in the Quanta book Alice and Bob Meet the Wall of Fire, published by the MIT Press. Available now where you buy books or to listen to on Audible.